Yes, the lecture will begin itself shortly. No, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, today is uh, an anomaly in the sense that if you were to take a church history course at a divinity school uh, or a seminary, you probably would not have a lecture like what we're going to have today. Um, I don't think Mark had one. Mm, not in church history course. Yeah, see, so very strange. Um, but it's important because I think as it will come clear, a lot of these ideas are ideas that we're going to continue to, you're going to recognize some of these ideas are still being around today in various forms. And also it's the point of contact, Neoplatonism, between ancient Christianity and ancient Eastern spirituality. Um, and by Eastern I don't mean Eastern Orthodox, but I mean actually Eastern, you know, sort of proto-Buddhism and that kind of thing. So, um, so it's worth noting that influence and, uh, you know, what that, in what that consists and what that meant for the church. Uh, so we start our journey with uh, Plotinus. Um, Neoplatonism is a philosophical school of thought whose founder is considered to be Plotinus, who lived from 204 to 270 AD. Plotinus likely studied under the same teacher as Origen, whom we studied earlier, and this, this teacher was named Ammonius. Ammonius was probably influenced by Eastern philosophies through Persia and was almost certainly not a Christian. Plotinus also was not a Christian, although his philosophy has influenced Christian, Jewish, Islamic, pagan, and Gnostic philosophies. The major features of his thought are the following. In Plato, the form of the good was the highest discernible reality. In some of Plato's writings, it seems to be joined by the form of the beautiful and the form of the true. But these three forms, called the transcendentals, seem to form an interpenetrating unity. All of this is theme language because this isn't explicitly spelled out by Plato. You have to interpret Plato a little bit to get here. Um, but over time, this is the interpretation of Plato that is becoming more and more the accepted one. And, and even to this day, this is the way that we, we tend to look at Plato is in this way. But there are other ways of interpreting Plato. So all of this led Plotinus to emphasize that above all reality was the one, the source from which all being derives, itself outside of and beyond being. This is the major feature of his thought, and as such, there are several important things to attend to here. The one is called the first hypostasis. That's a Greek word which um, translates, literally, if you were to translate it into Latin, it would be substance. Um, but more importantly for us, is hypostasis was the Greek word the church settled on to describe what there are three of in the Trinity. And so, if this is the word that gets translated by persona in Latin. So we've got is three persona, but one natura. Okay? So for the one to be called the first hypostasis is already going to start to call to mind to early Christians, Trinitarian theology. The process by which all that exists comes from the one is called emanation. In this emanation, the one remains unchanged and undiminished, even while being goes out from it to create the universe. The first emanation, and therefore the first thing to come into existence, is mind, where the platonic forms reside. So you'll recall that in Plato, um, the most real things there were were not, not chairs. These chairs aren't really all that real. It's the form of chair. The one chair, the idea of chair, of which all of these particular chairs that we see here are imperfect copies. And that's why 
my chair doesn't look like your chair because they're all imperfect versions of the one true. If we could see the one true chair, then that would be cool. But instead, we see these like, you know, they're okay chairs. You know, they're like, we call them chairs, but they're not really chair itself, chair nest. Right? And, and the, the claim is not just that there's this idea up there, but that that's the reality. That's the most real thing. And so the most real stuff is not here, it's up there. Right? Well, so in, in Neoplatonism, all of those forms, all of that fundamental reality resides in mind, the first emanation. So it's the first emanation. So it's the first thing to come into existence, which makes it the second hypothesis, because the one was the first hypothesis. It's likened to Plato's Demiurge, which was a craftsman who was responsible for creating the universe. Now, it's notable that in Plato, the craftsman doesn't create the universe out of nothing like the Christian God does. The craftsman sort of comes along and sees all this stuff lying around and is like, huh, I could, I could make something with that. You know, and he starts messing around with it and creates a universe out of pre-existing material. Um, so likewise, this mind is kind of this thing that comes along and shapes up whatever into uh, a reality. Uh, it does this by emanating the third hypothesis, which is soul. Now, soul includes both rational souls, as well as that soul which is the principle of all other movement and things. For example, the growth of plants, the tendency of a rock to go down and fire to go up. All of these are attributable to soul at some level. Okay? Different types of souls, but still soul. Now, it would be tempting to see an image of the Trinity in the one and the first two emanations. Right? Seems to make sense. You're using the word hypothesis for it, which is the word for what there are three of, and there are th three emanations right at the very beginning. And so you could say, okay, well, so the Father is like the one, and the Son is like mind, right, where all the ideas of creation reside, the word, and then the Spirit is like soul, which is all the movement there is in the universe, right, and ultimately even perhaps movement only happens because of love, and the Spirit would fit nicely into that too. However, it must be emphasized that for Plotinus, the emanations are hierarchical. That means that mind is less noble than the one, and soul less noble than the mind. Further, mind and soul are created because in this view, emanation is the process through which creation occurs. There, there aren't two different things, emanation and creation. Emanation is the process by which creation happens. Right? So emanation equals creation. So to try to see the trinity in this would be to create a subordinationist and in fact an Aryan view of the Trinity where the Son and the Spirit are less than fully God and are in fact created beings. And the Church has condemned this in Nicaea in 325. Therefore, although matter is considered to be so far from the One as to be evil, ultimately everything that exists emanates from the One and so the universe taken as a whole is good. Everything that exists is an outpouring of the One, which we could call the Divine, and so all of reality is permeated with the presence and goodness of God. Also, the destiny of everything is ultimately reabsorption into the One, a return to that primal unity from which everything took its start. Okay? Basic, basic Plotinus. Questions so far or comments? I have some comments. <laughs> if everything is an emanation of the One and ultimately flows back into it, the question might rightly be asked, in what way is it different from the One? 
Ultimately, the questions about how God and creation differ from one another if the creation is at its essence an emanation of God. This is the central question of Neoplatonism with which Christianity must contend and with which we continue to struggle to this day. The relationship between God and creation is very, very important. And it is always an important question to ask of any religious system that you are confronted with, whether it's masquerading as Christianity or not. Say, how exactly do God and the world relate to one another? Are they the same thing? Are they completely different things? Are they kind of different things? Very important question. Uh, two dangerous consequences concerning this question follow from the normal understanding of Plotinus' views. Um, again, this is a, a little bit interpretive, but it's, it's uh, a commonplace interpretation. Very few, this isn't really controversial reading of Plotinus that I'm giving you here. The first dangerous consequence is that individuality, the, uh, individuality as such, is at best temporary and at worst an illusion. In the return to the one, individuality is erased as we flow back into that great unity from which we came. It is at this point that the Eastern influence is quite pronounced. Think about nirvana in the Buddhist realm. So if there's no individuality beyond the return to the one, then the idea of a final judgment makes no sense. Nor do the doctrines of heaven and hell, for such differentiation, even of the blessed from God in heaven, is erased. Right, so you couldn't even have saints in heaven because really we all just sort of become God again. Right, we go back whence we came. It will be impossible under such a scheme to assign any meaningful role to Christ's death on the cross. For all things will ultimately and necessarily be folded back into the one. So what is the point of atonement? Um, certain contemporary theologians love to make much of the fact that in English etymology, atonement is a reference of rejoining of unity with God at one meant. Um, and so you'll see all these thoughts about it, and they usually spout very, um, very flowery, touchy-feely, lovey doctrines of um, salvation, you know, that we're going to be one with God again, it's going to be great, and there's just, it's love, and yay, everything's wonderful, and no one could possibly go to hell because that's horrible, and why would we say that? That's crazy. Um, here, it's especially appropriate because that's exactly Plotinus' idea, is that everything is going to go back into the one, but not in this sense that it's going to be this, we're going to be this big, loving, happy family, but we're going to be this big, loving, singular thing. Right? You're not, it's not going to be you and God as close as possible. It's going to be you and God. Actually, it's just going to be God. There's not going to be any you anymore, right? The you gets, gets erased. You get overridden. Your individuality is not strong enough to survive against the um, inevitable necessity of the divine one. Okay? The second unfortunate consequence, or dangerous consequence, is that the world is not really other than the divine. So it's not just that you're going to get reabsorbed back into God later on, it's that you're not really not God right now. Right? I stated above that in Plotinus' view, all of reality is permeated with the presence and goodness of God. Well, this isn't strictly true. Rather, all of reality is God, though God is having emanated into a lower form. Only in this way could it be taken back up into him at the end of all things. Right? It's not really, Plotinus is enough of a Greek that he's not going to say that something that is essentially not God could ever become a part of the divine unity. 
that's that's like the worst imaginable thing you could say about God in Greek philosophy. Okay, the idea that God has any commerce with, especially material reality at all, is is a, just a huge scandal. Right, and that's part of the scandal of Christianity is the idea that God took on flesh. Right, right away we had to deal with a bunch of you know all the educated snobs saying. That's ridiculous. You know, this is like, are, are we going? Are we just going back to the idea of the gods having affairs with men and stuff? I mean, this is this is ridiculous. This is not worthy to be said of the divine. And so Plotinus is a Greek enough that he's not going to want to say that. So for Plotinus, it only follows that everything can be reabsorbed into the divine if everything is ultimately the divine at some level. Right? You can't graft other stuff into it. Therefore. The answer to the question, what is the relationship between God and creation for Neoplatonism, is that they are identical. The theological problems of such a pantheism are legion, and I will not enumerate the various reasons why the church has continually had to rule this out as a valid theological option. I will, however, comment that uh, we are still struggling against the specter of pantheism today. Right? I mean, think about New Age philosophies and all of these types of things, New Age spirituality. Um, again, this is very like uh, many, many things that are influenced by a poor understanding of Buddhism, um, in addition to the idea of saying that, you know, when you die, you get reabsorbed into this one, would also sort of talk about how everything is divine and everything's connected and we're all part of the same divine, glorious unity. Right? Peggy's going to throw up back there. She's, I can't take it. <laughs> right. This idea hasn't gone away. Right. And, and in some sense, we're seeing it today coming from the same source from which it was arriving at Plotinus, coming from the East. But in another sense, there's a kind of, this struggle is built into Christianity from the very beginning, which means that there's a tendency within Christianity to go heretical in this direction. Right. And so it's something that you'll see various um, historical and denominational doctrinal formulations will be reminiscent of some of this stuff because it got in very early, which is our next topic. Any thoughts about Plotinus? Yeah. You uh, mentioned before about the circle where Jesus comes down and all those things. Really, I could see how people would apply this to that. Yeah. Are there any Christian cults like the Mormons or whatever that are influenced by this thinking today? I'm not sure what they believe and I've heard things. Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not very like the Mormons, um, nor do I believe it to be very like the Jehovah's Witness. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily, I, I don't know that on the top of my head of any major cult that would um, follow these ideas terribly closely. But um, you see, you see individuals who get taken in by these ideas and then get a certain amount of influence around them. Um, so perhaps not your friend who's starting the church, but someone who's starting a church, like your friend, might have been taken in by some of these ideas. And you can, you know, you can see how they really, they're kind of close, right? Like you were just saying, the idea of Jesus coming down and taking us back up into heaven, that can kind of sound like this idea of the one emanating and then the return to the one, right? And, you know, there is only one God, and that's the big Deuteronomy 6-4 moment. So that's kind of, that could seem to connect. And the Neoplatonic hypostases could sound kind of Trinitarian if you're not really very you know, specific about what's being said there. So um, without really knowing it, someone could very easily think that this is a good way to understand what what we say in the creed, for example. Well, Unitarianism kind of 
It could. Some strands of Unitarianism could. I mean, the, the real the real flagship doctrine of Unitarianism is is to deny the Trinity, and it's not necessarily to go on and say that all things are one. But um, those two things do fit together quite nicely. And if you think about um, Thoreau, there's, there's, a, there's a, this sort of spirituality, at least, underlies a lot of what Thoreau is writing, which then feeds into the Unitarians. Um, and 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 plus, I mean, so historically, this is what Unitarian is, but. Um, so, you know, say you're a 21st century Unitarian Universalist and you're not doing it because you're, you know, really steeped in Thoreau and Emerson and that sort of history of it, but you're doing it because it kind of makes sense to you as a spirituality. If you just think about the words Unitarian Universalist, it kind of sounds like all is the one, right? And so you could kind of get there on your own that way as well. And they, Oh yes, they're very, very accommodating. They would accommodate something. That's right. They, they would affirm you if that's what you believe. It's a safe place. Tell you, I guess. Well, one one thing that's been a, a many of the apologetic strategies of modernism, I feel, were hopelessly <coughs> limited to that particular period of time. But one of which I think was not that might be helpful here was the emphasis on the complexity of creation. Um, the biological sciences, uh, in their advance, have served rather to increase than mitigate a sense of wonder in the face of creation, um, a sense that the conditions necessary for the existence of life are so specific and fragile and minute that um, at the very least it's remarkable that life exists at all. Um, and then as you begin to look deeper into the biological organism and how it works and how things fit together, um, just the complexity of natural systems itself is uh, probably a good starting point for awakening some sense of spirituality. And I think that's the important thing is to note that this isn't an intellectual question first and foremost. It's a spiritual question. Um, Christianity is unique in that we were the first major world religion to say that it's not just how you live and it's not just what you think, it's both um, that determine where you are. But I, in, the, in, the, in the wake of a, a very rationalist turn in Western history, we've, we've gotten, we Christians have sort of begun to focus more and more on the intellectual side and to think that talking to the world means convincing them of things convincing them of truths, of propositions. Well, there's some aspect of that, but first and foremost, it's not an intellectual problem, it's a spiritual problem, right? The first problem that the world has is not that they don't think that there is a God, and it's not that they don't think that Jesus is God, it's that they don't have faith in God, it's that they don't have a relationship with God. And so that is a spiritual question first and foremost. So the first task then is to reawaken a sense of spirituality in a world that feels that spirituality is outmoded or, um, you know, not cool in some way. Right. 
Well, it, 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 it's in and it's out in different, in different parts of society, right? Um, and so, so either way, either you're awakening it or if it's already there, you're trying to then redirect it towards a proper object, right? So if you're dealing with, say, if you're dealing with, say, a Yale PhD, you might be trying to awaken it. If you're dealing with, um, you know, someone who is working as a bank teller, um, they might have this real deep sense that they have this great place in the midst of all things and everything, and you want to call them back to the wonder in the face of the complexity of that, and then call them back to the sense that that, that complexity argues for something more than just a random movement of particles, right? Again, in moments, the idea that God's invisible qualities have been, have been manifest from what's made. So to pull them back to the ways in which the creation itself proclaims that there is something more than what we're able to do. Right? That even as science goes deeper into mapping the genome and to unraveling the secrets of the universe, that science does not feel within its own discipline that it's getting closer to thinking that it will be able to understand everything fully, that there's this great mystery before which even science respectfully bows. Um, and so I think that that's a direction to go there. Um, but that's also, that, that's especially relevant because that's precisely where folks are going to look at that mystery and that complexity and say, see, the creation is divine, right? There's this line between God and creation which can never be crossed. And that line consists in the fact that God has no beginning, that God has no cause, right? No matter how much you, no matter how much grace God pours into creation, no matter how much God elevates creation to be heavenly, to be divine, it will never be God in the sense that it will never be without a cause. It will always depend on another for whatever grace it has. It will always depend on another for its existence at all. And so, However, however, like the angels we become, whatever your theology about last things happens to be, will never be like God in that way. That's, that's, a, that's a sharp line that cuts across between God and creation. It protects God from being domesticated. It protects God from our making God too much in our own image, and, which is just a way of, um, it's just a way of fooling ourselves into thinking that we're being pious when we're really not because now we're not worshiping God on God's terms, we're worshiping on our terms, arguably no longer worshiping God at all. Um, but it also, it also protects us from the kind of pride that was the cause of our fall in the first place. It protects us from thinking that there's something, there's anything that could make us be like God in the way that the serpent tempted us to be. It protects us from elevating and absolutizing the things that we have down here in our human world to the extent that they can become... Um, these oppressive structures that we would put on other people, or to the extent that they would become things that would then block us from hearing the voice of God in our world today, because we think that, because we, we've made the voice of God to be equivalent with the voice of man down here in this world. Those are the, the two things that are protected when you properly understand that there cannot be an identity between God and creation. Creation is in God's image, right? And there's a... This is, this is such, a, such a pivotal point in Christian theology. Um, if you rightly understand the enormity of the gulf that separates God from creation and the impossibility of crossing that gulf, then it frees you up to affirm the goodness of creation in radically powerful ways. It frees you up for a theological aesthetic that is deep and robust. 
it frees you up for an understanding of the glory of all the beauty around us, of all the natural beauty, of what man can do in man's creative powers, of all the good things about human civilization, because that divide is going to make sure that you can never think that human civilization is going to be salvific, that you're never going to think that these things could arise to the point where they could be something we could hope in, where they could be something that we could trust in, where they could be something that would give meaning to our lives. They enrich our lives, but only if our lives already have their meaning from another source, from a source that is uncreated, underived, uncaused, without beginning, without limit, without end. Yeah? Just to turn this around a little bit, if, uh, if I were witnessing an Eastern person, would I be perceived as trying to uh, thwart the divine plan? And if so, is that a major stumbling block in the part of the world? So the question is, do if, if I were if I were say a Buddhist and you were trying to witness to me, would I say by trying to turn me away from my views, you are fighting against the natural push of all of reality? Um, yeah, I mean, not that it wouldn't matter because you can't change it. I mean, you know, Nirvana's coming, man, and you can't do anything about it, <laughs> and you won't understand when you die because you won't be anything, <laughs> you'll be reabsorbed back into nothing, but, um, but yeah, you, you clearly don't get it. You clearly don't understand that what you're doing is you're, you're, you're doing violence to reality by trying to separate God from everything around you. Why are you trying to extract God from all of these things? Right. Well, I, ironically, this type of theology doesn't have a place for something like what we would call the presence of God. Because presence requires differentiation. God can't be present to all of creation if God is all of creation. Those are two different and, and really incompatible ideas. Okay? So if you are God, then there's no comfort in the presence of God. It's, it's, you're just it. You're God. You are itself the presence of God. And so there's nothing to come near to you to really give you any comfort there. Right? But if you're not God then there's the possibility that God can break in, that God can be present at every moment in every part of creation completely and fully in such a way as to be salvific and sanctifying and in such a way as to be comforting. Yeah? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, you know yourself. Don't you want something else? <laughs> it's, it's sort of like um, Rebecca has often said to me, you know, why do you like me? We're so different. And I said, I've already got one of me. <laughs> I don't need another me. I'm a better me than you could be, so <laughs> let's change it up a little bit. <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble later. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's it, and that's this is exactly. I love that question. Um, to be to be fair, I have to warn you. This is this is touching upon what my dissertation is about. Um, but I will I will refrain. Um, 
let me let me tell you why I'm writing about what I'm writing about, as by me way of answering that question. Um, I came across a very confusing statement in my author that I'm explicating in my dissertation, um, which I'm unfortunately unable to find now. But um, he made a comment to this to the effect that everyone was going to misunderstand his work. Everyone was going to think he was a Neoplatonist. But if only they would pay attention, they'd realize that he were a Platonist and not a Neoplatonist. And I thought to myself, that's really cool. What's that mean? <laughs> and, and I didn't know for many years. Um, and I discovered that many other people have no idea what that would mean either. Um, and, and then I figured it out. What it means is when you look at the relationship between creation and to make it pointed, man having been saved by Christ and God, and you look at the, this passage and the partaking of the divine nature, the difference between a Platonist and a Neoplatonist is how you understand that partaking. A Neoplatonist is going to say that partake of the divine nature is going to mean to be identical with the divine nature. Right? Ultimately, that's going to be that partaking will be explained in terms of identity. It may take them several steps to get there, but ultimately, that's what's going to happen at the end of the day. A Platonist is going to say it's not identity, it's participation. It's something like analogy. Okay? So God remains what God is, and we remain what we are, and that difference is the first word on the thing and can never be transgressed upon. But because that difference can never be transgressed upon, it's not the kind of thing that ever could be overcome, because of that, we can become much greater partakers of the divine nature than we would have ever dreamed possible. Because there's no danger that by God elevating us, God is going to in some way endanger God's own uniqueness. Right. That's, the, the, that's on, on what the question turns. Um, so the, the Orthodox Christian answer then is we're going to say participation is the root of that partaking that God remains other, and that God shares something of God's self with us. How much or how little is a matter of discussion and debate, but whatever is shared is not shared in such a way that we stop being human and start being God. Right? That would be a violation. That would, that would be an uncreation. Right? Why would God create humanity in order to then just flip it over and turn it into something else, turn it into God? It's not that God's original plan for humanity was bad. It's that we messed up God's original plan for humanity, and God has to step in and take action. Right. And so participation safeguards all of those realities, all those truths. Well, let's go, okay, go for it. Well, how bad do you think sin is? It's bad, is it, is, 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 does providence mean that God intended for man to sin? Or does providence mean that God's will for humanity is so great that even man's sin can't thwart it? Even, it's not clear to me that even Calvin believes that God is responsible for the fall. God is responsible for the damnation of the damned. Um, he's responsible for, you know, he, he chose them to wrath and chose us to election. But it's not clear to me from Calvin that he thinks that God is responsible for the fall. Um, there's an argument to be made there on both sides. But God must have known. Sure, but knowing doesn't mean causing. Knowing and causing are two different things. Right. But doesn't it, if, if you don't believe in some way that God's hand is in, even like the really bad things that happen, doesn't it deepen that, like, to me it, it deepens the contentment of the 
Well, who said that God's hand wasn't in it? There's a difference between, there's a difference between see, sovereignty and providence may be taken in multiple ways. And one way it may be taken is everything whatsoever that is done may be attributed, must be attributed to the divine agency. And so God is the first and only actor in everything that is done, which turns us into puppets. Um, another way is to say that God is the actor in everything that is done, but we are also actors along with God in everything that is done. So our choices are ours, even though they were also determined by God. Another way is to say that God allows us to make whatever choices we will, but our, our causal power in the universe is not enough to overcome God's final plan, and so choose what we will, God's will will be done. And we can be willing or unwilling instruments of that, um, and then that will be good or bad for us. All three of these different ways of understanding providence are ways of seeing God's hand in history. Right? To see, seeing God's hand intimately and, and inextricably tied up in what goes on down here. So I think under any one of those views, you would have the type of intimate involvement in history that Christianity says you must see for God and the Holy Spirit. Um, the question then becomes, which one of those views do you want? And, uh, and that's a little bit outside of our range for today. <laughs> this is what Augustine was touching upon in our last, and this, Augustine just starts this issue, and this is what we were touching upon a little bit then. And like I said, it's going to kind of lie dormant until basically Calvin. Um, Luther's going to st start it up again. There's some discussion about predestination, uh, some interesting discussion about predestination about 150 years, 200 years before Luther. Um, it's sort of a, a, a blip on the radar that goes away. Um, and then Luther's going to start really pushing that again. As Luther concentrates more and more on grace, he's going to start pushing back against free will more. And then Calvin's going to say even Luther didn't go far enough and return to a full-blown anti-Pelagian Augustinianism. Um, but my point here is not to make an argument for or against any one way of viewing divine providence. My point here is to, is to make sure that we understand what's at stake in a choice of divine providence. Too often, I think, it's easy for Reformed Christians to believe that if you don't hold a very Calvinistic view of providence, that you're taking God out of history. And I, I don't think that follows. Um, it's, it, it, may be, it may be the case, if you look at it and really analyze it, you may decide that it's not as active a view of God in history as you want it to be. That's something you may come to. But it's not taking God completely out of history. It's saying that what it means for God to be involved in history looks different than what the traditional Calvinistic view would say. Um, and I want to make sure we're, that we understand that because if we then get into conversation with those who believe differently than us on this topic, which is not an essential topic of Christian doctrine, doesn't determine whether you're a Christian or not, that we will be able to have fruitful conversation because we'll understand what it is that we're differing about. If you go up to someone who believes, um, if you believe in the first view of, of providence that I said, and you go to someone who believes the third view and you say, you don't see God's hand in history, they're going to be confused. They're not going to understand why you're saying that. It's going to feel to them like you're being unfair and you're just calling them names, right? So that's not that's already a bad start to a conversation. Well, let's go into what uh, what happens when these ideas get soaked into Christianity, right? Uh, because I, I alluded to the fact that that happened. Um, so what does that look like? So that brings us to um, Acts 17:34. In Acts 17:34, we read of Dionysius a member of the Philosophical Society of Mars Hill, which in Greek is Areopagus, and so Dionysius was called the Areopagite. 
He converted to Christianity after St. Paul's discourse there. Bless you. At some point during our period, works began to circulate which claimed to have been written by this Dionysius. Um, he even talks about, you know, he, a lot of the works are addressed to Timothy, his fellow elder, um, and so he's really putting himself in this persona of this disciple of Paul. Now, the deep dependence on Plotinus, evident in these works, makes it highly unlikely that they were written nearly two centuries before Plotinus by the Dionysius of Acts. And this is why we call their author Pseudo-Dionysius, because we don't think it really was him. Nevertheless, they were believed by most of the early theologians to have been penned by a disciple of Paul. You know, for like 1,500 years, these texts were believed to have been written by someone who studied and got this information directly from the Apostle Paul. Now, if, we've, if we had a text outside the Bible that we could prove to you had been written by somebody who had personally been converted by Paul and walked and studied with Paul, you would all read it, wouldn't you? You would all want to know what that guy had to say, and while it wouldn't be scripture, you would really be predisposed to go in that direction, because this guy is getting it really directly from the horse's mouth, right? Well, that's what happened. That's what everyone thought. So they have about as much authority as anything that's not scripture can have uh, for the first millennia and a half of church history, first three quarters of church history so far. This circumstance, the fact that they believed it was by Dionysius, even though it probably wasn't, sets Christianity up for what will turn out to be a lifelong struggle with the ideas of Neoplatonism. I'm playing a little bit of prophet there. I'm, I'm, I'm saying to you right now that this struggle will not be resolved until Jesus comes again. It's not like we're going to get over this one. Okay. Here are the important features of pseudo-Dionysius thought. Perhaps the most obvious idea inherited from Plotinus is the hierarchical structure of the universe. Plotinus was big on hierarchy, right? There's the one, and as the one gets multiplied, it's sort of this cascading triangle. Think of pyramid scheme, right? And with the, but it's a reverse pyramid scheme. So the, the one is not really reverse. So the one is at the top, and then you know it comes, you come down, and then you get mind and soul, and then it keeps coming down and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Um, sets up an obvious hierarchy of levels. The one is making the most money, right? It matters not really making any money at all. Matters just making money for the levels above it. Um, so, Pseudo-Dionysius, as a devout Christian, believes the notion of a hierarchy makes sense, and will also structure these hierarchies in triadic structures wherever possible in order to image the Trinity. For him, a hierarchy is, quote, a sacred order, a state of understanding, and an activity approximating as closely as possible to the divine. What does that mean? Well, there, there are three distinct ideas here, kind of difficult ideas. A sacred order. Right. The idea that wisdom is the right disposing of things, and so the wisdom of God is to create and assign things in the proper grades. That, it's, that a wise God would want there to be a smooth gradation of being from the top down to the bottom. Right. But that's, just, that's just prettier. Aesthetically pleasing. They thought so. Peggy doesn't buy it. A state of understanding. Let me rephrase that. Making concrete intellectual realities. Taking that which is a structure of the mind and giving it 
concrete existence. That reason is logical and therefore reason is structured and that the universe is going to mirror that structure in its hierarchical constitution. And then an activity approximating as closely as possible to the divine. That means that if you look at the divine activity, it's possible to discern differentiations, even though it's one and unique. And so the, the hierarchy is a sort of visual, created representation of the manifold operations of the divine power. That for every different way in which God can act, there's something corresponding to that in, in existence, which kind of fills that role in the universal causality. Which would be kind of neat if you wanted to do a sort of dual action theory where everything is done by God and everything is done by something else in creation, there would be something in creation to correspond to every possible thing God could do. And so it would be real easy to kind of line things up. It would be pretty neat. Now the goal of hierarchy, in his view, is to enable beings to be as like as possible to God and to be at one with him. Right, so why do we have these different imagings of what God looks like and the way that beings are laid out? It's so that we can, to some extent, participate in the divine life by being a part of a whole that is as, as, as God-like as possible. If, if the universe as a whole is an image of God and the universe as a whole needs to look as much like God as possible for a created thing to be. That's the idea. So, the basic hierarchy is God, angels, humanity. Three. Within the angels, he distinguishes three ranks, each of which further has three ranks, making up nine total angelic orders. Those nine are the ones that are listed um, in the New Testament. You know, um, you, so if you start with Seraphim and Cherubim, and then you add principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, all of that kind of stuff, and you get your nine ranks of angels. Um, when secular folks want to go and do angelic stuff, this is still where they go to sort of rank the angels. Um, a similar division to the angelic division is to be found in the church. And so there are nine orders within the church, and that's your pastors and your prophets and your evangelists and all of those kinds of things. Now, at each level, the ranks are differentiated according to their function. So every time you have a threefold division, wherever, whether that's God, angels, humanity, or the three larger ranks of angels, or the three specific ranks within any one rank, every time there's a threefold thing, there's always, they always correspond to this activity. Namely, the first rank deals with perfection or union with the divine. The second with illumination or revelation and the third with purification. So if you map it onto the basic hierarchy, God deals with union, the one, right? Angels deal with illumination. They're messengers. They carry information down to us, and they reveal stuff. Humanity with purification. That's the thing that's needing to be purified. <coughs> but also, if you look at the different structures within the angels, there's, one, there's a set of three angelic orders whose primary business is to help humanity with the union with God part, right? Um, and within that set, one of those guys, the seraphim, the highest order, are especially charged with this task, while the cherubim, who are the second order within that highest one, they help us with that union through some sort of illuminative function, right? So you can draw this whole big chart of all of these things and sort of map it all out, 
It gets really complicated. It's almost Gnostic in its complication. Um, Gnostics love this, love Neoplatonism because it can be very complicated, and it talks about emanations and things, which Gnosticism is all about, so that's good for them. Um, but the idea is that there's this kind of one divine way of doing things, which gets repeated over and over and over again. Right. Oh, not so much. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's in and out of scripture, you know. It's 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 in the same way that a lot of this this crazy stuff we've seen uh, has been dealing creatively with scripture before. But you know what his his number one claim to where he's getting it from is is Saint Paul's vision that he alludes to when he says he knows of a certain man who is wrapped up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of it, I don't know. Right. He's claiming that somehow Paul was able to communicate something of what this meant to him, and then because of that, later on, he had a similar experience, and he's now able to report to you what the angelic hierarchies are like and what the structure of the universe is. You know? I mean, this still happens, right? Kids smoke up and they think they understand the universe. <laughs> Yes. It's from the Trinity, yes. Um, this is, you know, most, uh, most of Christian theology has felt that if you thought about it you, and just looked around you and really had, you know, were really honest with yourself, you would realize that there is a God. Most of Christian theology has not also said that if you thought about it, you would realize there's a Trinity. They would say that we would not know that, there, that God is Trinity unless God had revealed it to us. Um, Pseudo-Dionysius does not explicitly disagree with this, but you could see how the way the universe is set up, it would make, it would seem like you could reason backwards to the Trinity just by looking around you and seeing how things work. Um, because of this, uh, there is one medieval theologian who actually says, yeah, threes are everywhere. And so creation is meant to declare not just that God is one, but also that God is three. And so Trinity would come from creation. But most of Christian theology has said, yeah, you're not going to get there on your own. <laughs> Um, that's just not intuitive. <laughs> now. Um, now, all of this becomes the basis of a mystical theology whose impact on Christianity has been massive and which continues to this very day. Um, there's, a, there's a long-standing tradition in mystical theology, which is theology that is devotional, um, of talking about this threefold way this threefold process of, that you follow in your, in your spiritual life. And the first one is purgation, which is purification, right? Being purged of your sins and your sinful thoughts and your fixation on worldly things and all of that. The second one is illumination, where because you've been purged of all of these earthly and sinful thoughts and realities, you're now able to receive what God wants to say to you, and so you begin being filled with the Spirit more and more, <clears throat> which illuminates you, which gives you fresh understanding, which helps you to understand God better, and then lastly, union, which in this life happens in ecstasy, which means to be outside of yourself, because God is other than you and possibly even somewhere else, and so you go outside of yourself, you get wrapped as Paul was in order to be in that union with him, but in the next life, you'll be able to have union and be within yourself. Um, if, you, if you look at, you know, the, the great Catholic mystics, uh, the mystics of the Middle Ages, the mystics of um, the 18th and 19th centuries, um, 
Catholicism maintains this to this day. Um, some species of charismatic theology owe a lot to this way of understanding. Um, some evangelical understandings owe a lot to this. Um, anywhere spiritual fervor becomes an important feature of the Christianity, which, by the way, it should be. Uh, we should be excited about God, I think. Um, but anywhere that happens, the, you, may, you might see this theology pop up. I see this idea of this sort of three stages of growth in Christian spirituality pop up. Dan? Wouldn't that kind of work against our idea about the over salvation? We really don't, we really don't become purified before we receive Christ. Well, that's true, but the, the Christ, Christ coming to us well, our, our acceptance of Christ and then the gift of the Holy Spirit into our hearts is not what they consider to be union with God. Union with God is, you know, once all that's been done and there's been a big work of sanctification and progress in grace, um, then there's this, you start getting these, like, mystical experiences where uh, you, so, sometimes it's visions, sometimes not, but where you experience this, this, oneness with God and it's kind of it, it can be focused on Christ it can be focused on the Holy Spirit it's more Catholic to focus it on Christ especially um, the crucified Christ it's more charismatic to focus it on the Holy Spirit um, in evangelical type theologies it tends to focus on God as an undifferentiated person not any one specific person of the Trinity um, but it, it presupposes the it presupposes baptism, the saving work of Christ, and the prior sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. In all of this, there is nothing but what man needs to do. That's, well, right, and so that's that, that's a lot of what that is because it's it's um it's not determined, but it's able to be determined in a lot of different directions in that way, so that um, you could map a lot of different sets of obligations on man onto this system and say, well, what it means for you to be purified by the Holy Spirit means for you to spend, um, for you to do prayers every third hour, including the middle of the night, and to read through the Psalms, to read through all the Psalms every day or every week or every month or something like that, or it means for you to seclude yourself from the world and meditate upon the goodness of God, or it means for you to go out and do works of charity, or it means for you to speaking tongues, or, you know, all of these different types of things. You can sort of put any means in there you want to, but the overarching structure is that what these means are going to progress you through is this, these three stages. But because there is no sin, quote-unquote, there's no accountability, so in essence, like you said before, where does the law of the right? No sin? Why is there no sin? Where is there mention of any... Well, it hasn't, it hasn't come up in here, but there are, you know, this isn't a complete system. These are the, there's a lot of what we know that's also in here as well. So, I mean, there is the idea of sin, and that's, uh, the idea of purification presupposes that there is sin. In, in Plotinus, purification just presupposed matter. You just need to get away from matter, because that, that was the, the dirty thing. In Pseudo-Dionysius, it's actually sin. But, the fact that it was matter for Plotinus means that, in this type of Neoplatonic spirituality, there's a strong tendency to put down the flesh. Um, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a strong monastic tendency to sort of say, well, you have to get away from physical realities, you have to get out of your body before you can really see God properly. Um, 
this is very dangerous, and it continues to this day, and people talk about it, and um, I've heard, uh, especially in some charismatic circles, people talk about, well, you, need to, you need to get out of your flesh and get into God. Well, my flesh is created by God. It's not just my flesh that's sinful right now. My soul is sinful as well. And so getting out of my flesh isn't going to fix anything. And furthermore, bodily resurrection people, what's going to happen then? Right? So it's, it's a really dangerous and insidious thing that just keeps dogging the heels of Christianity. And, and, and much of the best, many, uh, much of the vanguard of, of Christian spirituality is still has a, a real problem with the body. And the fact that, eh, let's not put it on the Catholics, all of us have problems with sexuality, right? There's some sense that somehow there's just something inherently bad about it. Please. I mean, we have to, we have to find a, a way to theologically get around that. And I appreciate the president that spent so much time on that in this church, talking about the ways in which sexuality is beautiful and good. And yes, it partakes of our sinfulness. Everything about us is, is a mixed bag at this point in time. But, you know, the matter per se, the created things per se, are not, are not evil. And that's why, because we don't have to get away from those things, that's why we can have an aesthetics. A lot of monastic spirituality would say, you don't want to use vision, you don't want to use any sort of images, even in your head, when you think about God, because that's going to be, that's something material that's going to be getting in the way. You have to, the real vision of God is imageless. What does an imageless vision look like? <laughs> Nirvana, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Jennifer, you have something? That's right. Having the mind of Christ, for example. Yeah. Obviously, we're not going to perfect it in this life, but He, you know, and the Spirit will be living within us and working through us. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. And another thing, following up, following up on that, that this theology tends to forget is that at the end, you don't fly up to heaven. Heaven comes down to earth. Right. The New Jerusalem in Revelation comes down and rests upon the earth, and that's where it is. That's where the heavenly city is, and that's where we're going to be with God. So it's not as if there's a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to go up to the new heavens. It's that there's a new heavens and a new earth, and it's all right here. Right? Um, but with all the... Well... Not yet. There's a lot of not yet right now. There's a, there's a, there's a transformation still that we don't want to lose sight of. But, but yeah, that it's, it, it is a transformation and not a denial. It's not, the, the, you know, the world will not be destroyed in fire. It will be purified by the fire and changed and transformed by that fire. That's the, that's the idea. Well, another major idea that Pseudo-Dionysius inherits from Plotinus is the notion of emanation. Pseudo-Dionysius would describe God as self-diffusing goodness. That is, as the highest good, which spontaneously, and because of no other reason than because the good would wish to share itself, emanates other things. Okay? So, this is a necessary emanation. What it means to be good is that you go out. That's just how you work. So, properly speaking, it's to be understood about the processions of the persons within the Trinity. So, 
Um, that's how that comes about. God is just so good that God, it's not good enough to just be good by yourself. You have to have somebody else to share that goodness. And so Trinity comes about. God becomes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because being good, God wishes to share what God has. It doesn't stop there, though. For God chooses to go on and emanate angels and humans and the whole created hierarchy. Now, this is not a necessary emanation. This is a, cho this is a choice. But it is still an emanation. Each level gets further and further from God, becoming less and less noble, such that a man is not as glorious as an angel, a dog not as glorious as a man, and a stone not as glorious as a dog. But they are all emanations of the divine, and all possess within themselves something of his goodness. Matter is not evil, it is just the least good of all created goods. But, you know, not everyone, this is pseudo Dionysius, but not everyone who follows pseudo keeps that no matter is not evil things. Sometimes they fall back into Plotinus, away from pseudo Dionysius. Now, it's unclear how pseudo Dionysius would answer the question of the relationship between God and creation on such a scheme. Is, at the end of the day, is it going to be identity, or will he be able to maintain a necessary distinction between God and creation? It is, however, the single most important question he must be asked, and yet it is one that has rarely been put to him in the history of Christianity. It's the one thing we should have been asking all along about this, and it's the one thing that we very rarely ask him, because he said it with Paul. Right? He's got to have it right. The texts are able to be understood in several ways, and so it is the duty of the one drawing inspiration from these texts to ensure that the relationship is not conceived of in terms of identity, which would end up with the problems discussed above. So, never officially dealt with at a church council, not a part of the mainline story of the development of theology in terms of how the doctrines of the creeds and everything comes about, but I think you've all demonstrated that you see how important it has been in the history of Christianity, what an important role it's played, um, and especially today in the global marketplace of ideas where um, there are sources from outside of Christianity that are pushing some of these same thoughts to know how, how have they historically related to Christianity and what is, what is the necessary Christian angle we have to take on it, right? What questions do we need to keep in mind when we're approaching these types of things? That's Neoplatonism. The now a few of those that these texts were written before Paul? Uh, after, after Paul. Okay. Uh, the, so, so the the reason, the best reason we have for thinking that Dionysius was not that Dionysius is that if he wrote this before Plotinus lived, then he's the father of Neoplatonism and not Plotinus, and there's such there's such a direct um, influence that it, the most likely case is that he had read Plotinus. Um, and Plotinus was born in 207 AD. So, not, not early enough. Yes, and also we don't, he, he doesn't really show up in early texts. Um, you know, if, 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 if this stuff had been around and circulating, you would expect someone to mention it. But it's really, uh, you know, probably the 6th century before anyone actually says, oh, by the way, Pseudo-Dionysius, right, I mean Dionysius, they wouldn't say Pseudo. <laughs> 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 yeah. And that's why it would never be considered for canonization, even if it was truly that close to Paul. Right, that's right. Because the canon would have been closed before it was even came to, and came into light, you know. Right. And it's also why it wouldn't have, 
come under the, the early councils wouldn't have dealt with it because it would have been happening on the fringes and people would have been it'd be very easy not to be aware of what's going on um, and by the time by the time it came up um, you know they were just sort of not looking at it as carefully as they should have the sixth century fathers looking at it did not look at it as closely as they should have probably because they themselves had the Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism became a really big deal. You know, it really got out there. And, and it, it really sort of became, after the fall of the empire, when things sort of settled down again, it became one of the major thought systems. Um, and in, in a way, it overtook normal Platonism and Aristotelianism, which was also a very big-time philosophical option. Um, and so uh, when something is that much in the air, it's very difficult to stop and question it. Um, something we have to watch out for, the things that are in the air in our culture that we don't, the assumptions that we don't stop and question. That's why C.S. Lewis recommends that you always read at least two old books for every new book you read because they help you realize the things that you take for granted that people a hundred years ago would thought was crazy. And maybe they were right. Anyway, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for for all of your saving work for us. Father, we humbly come to you seeking to be taught concerning your being, concerning your plan and your will for us, and concerning the ways in which you have related to us and the way in which you have chosen for us to worship you. Lord, help us not to be so blinded by our own desires. Um, help us, Father, not to be eager to lower you to our level, nor to raise ourselves to your level, but to not think of ourselves higher than we ought to worship you as the sovereign Lord, the creator of all things, to rejoice in the good things you've given us, but not to worship them, not to hope in them, not to put our faith and trust in them, but to reserve those things only for you, the God and Father of all. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.